This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next couple of hours, we'll bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and more. And you know what? There's a lot going on when it came to politics this week, Jason. A ton going on with politics. Obviously, keeping an eye on what's happening around the world, especially the implications, the ripple effects, as it were, both economically, financially, and from a human perspective, with the coronavirus, all of that uh, staying in the news. Right. Also on the show, In Pursuits, there's a new book on Facebook. A lot of good details in there, some things that'll make you want to read the whole thing. This is well beyond the social network. Also, Coco Melon, if you got a toddler in your house and that toddler is familiar with YouTube, you've seen Coco Melon's work, but you may not know Who's behind it? I just like saying Coco Melon. I know. Coco Melon. Coco Melon. Plus, we've got a couple of conversations, one with the CEO of Cura Leaf, and then we've also caught up with the president of the University of Minnesota. So we're talking about cannabis. We're also talking about education. Yeah. Not together. Not together. <laughs> never together. <laughs> Although maybe. You never know. You never know. Who's to say? First up, though, a debate, pardons. It was a busy week in politics. Here with a roundup, politics editor Wendy Benjaminson. She joins us in D.C. So, Wendy, we got to start with the debate. Certainly a big deal. And it was a heated debate. Uh, talk to us about it. What were the major takeaways? Well, it was a very heated debate. It was the really, they've had nine debates now, and this was by far the most lively. And, you know, even though Bernie Sanders is the front runner, they had one target, and it was Michael Bloomberg, uh, founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg News. But he has been rising in the polls, entirely self-funding his campaign. And as he rises in the polls, more and more has come out about things he said in the past and um, other issues. And the other Democrats, especially the centrists and the women female candidates, were really there to take him out. And they did their best to do so. Well, and let's talk about that. Elizabeth Warren came out hot, and she seemed to have really the best performance she's had in some time, if not ever through this whole cycle. Well, she had a very, very strong performance, and she really needed to give her campaign some CPR, and I think that's what she did. She really had flagged through Iowa and New Hampshire, coming in third, coming in fourth, I think, in New Hampshire, and she was... um, really looking like she was going to be left behind. And if there was an opportunity to revive her campaign, uh, she might have done it. Not only did she attack Bloomberg, but she went and um, defended Amy Klobuchar and really presented herself as sort of the grown-up at the table, um, you know, who was going to tell everyone how it is. And that was that was a good look for her. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, what about for Bernie Sanders, right? He has been certainly the front-runner, it feels like, here. How did he fare? He he did very well. He defended his position. I don't think he did himself any real harm. Um, you know, Bernie is Bernie, and that <laughs> is one of the things that has propelled him to frontrunner status. He does not tack to the left or the right based on anything. This is who he is. Love him or leave him. You know, that's really how he feels. And he was just himself. He had some interesting sparring with Bloomberg over his own wealth um, and over socialism. But, you know, he seemed to have uh, survived the night unscathed. What I thought was interesting, um, Wendy, about the debate, too, was very much everybody going after one another. It wasn't about thinking about defeating President Trump, I felt like, largely. No, it wasn't. But remember, this is the Democratic primary. And in the Democratic primary, one of them has to emerge as the victor. The trouble is there are some people who are worried about a repeat of 2016, where the primary candidates spend so much time fighting with each other that whoever is the nominee comes out sort of battered and bruised and out of money and, you know, ill-equipped to fight the general election, as Hillary Clinton might have been in 2016. So I do think they want want to at some point begin to avoid that. The trouble is the progressives seem to have rallied around Bernie Sanders. The centrists have a lot of choices there and no one seems to have really emerged as the favorite. All right. Well, Wendy, meanwhile, in Washington this week, a lot of people on Wall Street here in New York were captivated by the pardons by President Trump, especially uh, Michael Milken, well-known financier, you know, has sort of had this amazing sort of second life as a philanthropist and and a convener. Give us some context for these pardons and commutations that we saw this week. 
Well, certainly the president feels unleashed since his own acquittal in the impeachment trial uh, just recently. And so he is um, feeling like he has power to use. And so he is, you know, proceeding with these pardons. There is a normal process for pardons. Presidents do have this power. They use it quite often. Bill Clinton did after his own impeachment uh, was over. And he, um, but Trump has doesn't let it go through the process. He sort of listens to lobbying that's done on Fox News. He listens to lobbying done by friends and, you know, colleagues from around his world pre-politics. And, um, and then acts on, on that lobbying. And I think that's where a lot of these pardons came from. Are they done? Because I know that there's been some other stories about maybe some other folks that he might be considering pardoning. Could we expect more news in the next couple of weeks, maybe? Well, this is Donald Trump, so your guess is as good as mine. And that's Wendy Benjaminson leading our coverage of politics down there in Washington. What a week it was because a lot of stories there in the nation's capital, but also a lot of focus on Nevada. Absolutely. And I also thought, Jason, what was interesting is the presidential pardons. I think, uh, you know, we were a little surprised by the timing of them. But Michael Milken, uh, a lot of well-known individuals in the investment world, in really the world at large, um, that were lobbying for his pardon, and he got it. Uh, Certainly well known to our audience. Earth's most popular kids channel. It's run by a skeleton crew. It's owned by a 55-year-old guy, Jason, who lives in a quiet California suburb. Who knew? I know. Well, I have to say, after reading this story, I was like, have I heard of this? And then... Especially with Alice. Hanging around with my two-year-old, boom, Coco Melon popped up uh, (laughs) over the weekend. Lucas Shaw joins us from L.A. Tell us about this guy and this phenomenon. It's a classic story of this this YouTube generation where just about anybody can become one of the most influential or most famous media personalities in the world. You know, he kind of came to Southern California from Korea a long time ago. Uh, he was a commercial director, made different uh, projects for advertisers, and decided with his wife when they had a couple of small kids that they wanted to make videos for them. His wife illustrates children's books, and he obviously is a, a filmmaker, and so they collaborated on t- pretty basic 2D animation. Uh, they did they did it enough that they started to really like it. They built a following. They had to keep their jobs for a while. After several years, you know, they had built enough of a following that they could leave their jobs, but it was still you know, modest, tens of millions of views a month, nobody's idea of the most popular kids' channel in the world. But then just bang, a couple of years ago, after, after more than a decade uh, of running this channel, their views just take off. They go from about 100 million views a month to more than 2 billion views a month. In less than a couple of years, and now it is the second biggest channel on YouTube in the world, and the average video gets tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of views. And they're trying to figure out now, what do we do with this thing that we built? Well, that's what's interesting. First of all, you keep saying they, and you're, I feel like you're being a little evasive. Who are they? Because, I mean, there were conditions for doing this story and actually sitting down and talking with, with uh, the founders behind this. Yeah, this was the first interview that this guy Jay John had ever done. Uh, he's really avoided press, and the they is, is Jay and his wife. You know, there are a lot of things that he either didn't want us to mention in the story uh, or that he just wouldn't go into at all, would, would kind of refuse to address. Uh, you know, he's a, a very mild-mannered Korean-American, 55 years old, uh, lives in, uh, or at least works in Irvine, California, which is in Orange County, uh, about an hour and a half south of Los Angeles, uh, and was inspired a little bit because there was a, a growing amount of press about kids' channels on YouTube and how we don't know who's behind them and do we want our kids watching videos from unknown people, could be shadowy, lots of you know, unsavory programming on, on YouTube, so maybe there were people with ulterior motives. And I think he wanted to set the record straight uh, that there's nothing nefarious about him. He's just sort of a, a, a quiet guy who has a wife and two kids and wants to keep making videos. Yeah, and tell us a little bit more about sort of the... I don't know if it's a tortured relationship, but the complicated relationship between, as you alluded to, YouTube and kids programming, because there are all sorts of sort of general rules. But the reality is we know and a lot of us as parents know kids are watching a lot of YouTube. 
Yeah, I mean, the basic rule should be that kids don't watch any YouTube. You're not supposed to have, you know, YouTube says that it has a kids app, which is for people under the age of 13, and that for, to access regular YouTube or big YouTube, you should be over 13. But as, as you point out, that's just not true. A lot of the most popular YouTube channels in the world are for kids. You know, you, you look at Coco Melon, which generates a couple billion views a month, two and a half billion views a month, and it's nursery rhymes. In what world is that a channel for adults? It's not. <laughs> Uh, and that's what led earlier this year, you know, the, the Federal Trade Commission, excuse me, in, in 2019, the Federal Trade Commission uh, kind of fined YouTube, and YouTube introduced a raft of changes, both to make regular YouTube safer for kids, which, by the way, YouTube still kind of pretends don't use YouTube, and to try to direct more people to use YouTube Kids. YouTube is funding original programming for YouTube Kids, and it's changed the way that advertisers can target people on the big channel. But this is just an ongoing challenge for YouTube. It's something that most of the creators will talk about pretty openly in private. They'll acknowledge that it's a problem and they'd like to see there be more reform. But nobody's quite sure what to do about it unless YouTube were to take a step that it has been really reluctant to. And that's kind of screen every video uh, before it goes up or completely fence off big YouTube for anything that could be approaching kids' videos. Instead, it's incumbent upon the channels to kind of self-identify as for kids so that the type of advertising that is served is different. What's also interesting, though, and I feel like this is another underlying theme of your story about diversification now becoming increasingly important for even the most popular YouTube star, stars. And you talk about Coco Melon. That's what they're planning to do is diversify, that you can't just kind of depend, especially if it's a kid-focused kind of channel, you can't kind of depend depend on that ad-based model anymore. Yeah, look, if you are one person in your bedroom vlogging, you can have a business that way. But most people get bored doing the same thing over and over again. They want to grow that business. So in the case of Coco Melon, what started is just a husband and wife team has now grown into an operation of 20-something people. And they see there's an opportunity if they want to make merchandise or if they want to make movies, sell something to uh, a str another streaming service like a Netflix, uh, you know, stage live events. These are all different opportunities that, that YouTube channels have explored over the years because they know that there's only so big you're going to get just on advertising on YouTube, especially with kids right now, because most of these channels have seen their advertising sales drop 50% to 60% since some of the new changes instituted at the at the outset of 2020. They have to be looking at other opportunities. And so I think what you've seen with Coco Melon is part of it was natural. They were going to do that as the channel got bigger because they one, it would fund their operation. And also just they had fans who were demanding it. And then with the recent changes, it, I think it spurred them to act more quickly and decide decisively than they otherwise might have, because Jay John, as he said, is not a particularly decisive person. He really likes to think over things for a long time. And so, Lucas, put this in the context of sort of the broader streaming trend that we're seeing, because, again, from a very personal perspective, you know, one of the ways that we consume YouTube at our house is we pull it right through our smart TV. And I do wonder how YouTube programming changes what's expected of it, what the opportunities are as we live in this much more streaming driven world. I don't expect a ton of changes from YouTube. Where I'll where I'd expect some changes from everybody else. Yeah. You know, Netflix, Amazon, Disney, Comcast, all these other companies that are bringing in new streaming services or trying to build existing ones are going to make appealing to kids a huge priority. Netflix has has invested billions of dollars in animation, more I think to compete with, with Disney, but also with YouTube, which is ultimately its biggest competitor online. You're seeing a lot of investment in kids programming uh, from AT&T for its new streaming service, HBO Max. I think you'll see Disney Plus or Disney Make original programming for Disney Plus and on down the line. That's Lucas Shaw writing about Coco Melon. I hadn't heard about this channel, but it's crazy. It's Earth's most popular kids channel. Alice, you have a little one. You hadn't heard about it either. I hadn't, although once I saw it, I You're figured all out <laughs> that this may dominate my life for some years to come. But I certainly didn't know about the guy behind it, the whole machinery yeah. uh, and the huge success. And it really does tell a big story about where we're going in terms of how we consume content. Two and a half billion views per month. It's just blows your mind. Startups are flooding Kenya with apps offering high-interest loans. Are they empowering or taking advantage of the poor? It's a good question. It's a split-screen story mm -hmm. in many ways. I was thinking story. about that as I was reading it. It's a terrific piece of reporting. Zeke Fox with us here in New York City. He went to Kenya, saw this. Take us there. So I was in Kitale, which is in western Kenya, 
And one evening, I was walking down the street just talking to people about uh, credit, stopping people to ask them if they'd tried out one of these new loan apps. You'd be amazed. Almost everybody has. Few people have bank accounts, but they, over the last few years, most people have tried out borrowing over their phone. Um, so I found a woman who was selling jewelry, and my photographer, Rupa, actually asked her, have you ever tried Tala? Uh, and she didn't look like a likely customer for a Silicon Valley-backed loan app. She was sitting on the street in the dark selling bracelets, but she said that she had. And she, Her name was Patricia Lele. She told us this harrowing story about how she had taken a small loan in order to buy supplies for her jewelry business, but then uh, fallen sick. And she didn't want to go to the doctor because she had no money other than what she'd borrowed. She wanted to pay back the loan. But when she did go to the doctor, it turned out she had malaria and typhoid fever. And she was in the hospital. She defaulted on her loan. And then she got a call from a debt collector for this app saying, where's our money? You owe us, I think it was about $80. Pay us. She's like, I can't. I'm in the hospital. She's like, then the collector said, borrow it elsewhere. Figure it out. Get us our money. Uh, so she had this like very negative experience with this loan app, which uh, was you know designed to try and help people like her, uh, entrepreneurs in developing countries. You know, Zeke, I feel like Africa, uh, Kenya, of course, included, you know, is a hotbed for financial startups and you know trying out new things. Tell us a little bit about Tala, because it sounds like there is some good to it, right, in providing money for individuals and bringing them into the financial system, but there's a downside. So Tala is, you know, by all measures, a hot startup. I mean, several years old now, but they've raised more than $200 million. They're in Santa Monica, and they have an app that makes small loans to people in developing countries. Kenya was the first market that they tested. So anyone can download the app and apply for a loan of 10 or $20. It's like microloans. That's exactly what it is. Right. Real tiny loans. And the pitch for it is that this is going to help the woman who has a vegetable stand to buy some more tomatoes, and then she can sell them, repay the loan, and improve her business and perhaps lift herself out of poverty. And the Tala has gotten great publicity for this the founder, Shivani Soroya, is a regular at conferences giving a spiel about this. And TED Talks, right? I mean, TED Talk. really popular. Yeah. So, but what she doesn't talk about is that the app charges quite a high interest rate. It's uh, 180% annualized. So that's about 10 times what you would pay on you know, your credit card. Now, the loans are, are short term. So the idea is that you'd borrow 10 bucks. And then you'd pay back eleven fifty next month. And put that way, it doesn't sound that bad. Uh, but until you can't pay it back, right? I mean, and going and to the interest keeps building, right? So actually, the way that Tala works is if you pay late, they charge you a one-time late fee, and then they stop uh, accumulating interest. The problem is that I found when interviewing people in Kenya is that many people would borrow from Tala then they would struggle to pay back the loan because to us, $10 seems very small. But the, I mean, the loans go as big as $300. And for some people, it could be more than they make in a whole month. Right. So when the loan comes due, they borrow from other apps to pay back Tala because this digital lending is in a real boom in Kenya. There's more than 50 apps that are offering these kinds of loans. So I spoke to people who every month were taking out five loans, six loans, paying off one with the other. And when you added up all the interest charges they were paying, it was a significant part of their income. Right. So it's not like we're used to seeing in the United States where it's like a credit card bill that just sort of keeps rolling over. It's sort of interest on interest from different providers. And this is a booming business, as you said. Yeah. I mean, essentially, the loans are pretty similar to payday loans in the right. U.S., where you get a small amount of money and you're supposed to pay it all back in two weeks or one month. Um and for people in Kenya, I mean, this is really, uh, it's really new. I and mean, most people have never borrowed from 
a bank or a credit card company. And that's Zeke Fox. You know, we count on him to bring us a different side of the financial system, often, candidly, the underbelly of the financial system. This story took him all the way to Kenya, and what he found, I think, surprised even him. And kind of sad, because it's an app that's tr- you know supposed to be helping people get out of poverty, but it's actually putting them into um, a debt cycle trap, and that's unfortunate. So the main character in a story in this week's Bloomberg Business Week magazine, Jason, it's a steel company and its CEO that was in favor of the Trump administration's tariffs until it wasn't. Absolutely. It's a fantastic story in Bloomberg Business Week. Joe Doe was one of the writers, but we have the man himself here with us, the CEO and president of JSW Steel USA. That's John Ritz. Nice to see you. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Welcome to Bloomberg headquarters. So tell us the story in your own words. Take us back to these tariffs being announced and how you felt about it initially. Okay. Initially, um, when the tariffs were announced, we thought, uh, or I thought, uh, uh, if you recall from the story, I landed in Baytown, Texas in 2015 to start reviving that company and bringing in a new team and mm-hmm. all of that jazz. And then ultimately, though, when, um, when the tariffs got announced, uh, we thought, uh, I believed, as we were develop- developing our vision for how we would go forward, um, t- because that facility makes big plate, six inch thick, 150 inches wide, 155 right. inches wide, down to quarter inch and, and pipe for energy. Now, um, so we had a, a vision on how to put in the plate mill of the future. We designed that with a bunch of wonderful engineers. That was number one. Then we thought with the tariffs going in place, they were, it was going to slow down dumping. I testify in front of the ITC from time to time. International and, Trade Commission? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And because of plate being dumped in this country and pipe being dumped from uh, – I won't get into the countries. But um, I can talk about that at length. But anyway, um, and so we saw um, not only – remember, we had to compete for this capital. Mm-hmm. And and the company, our parent company, is a phenomenal parent. You know, It's a phenomenal company, JSW, uh, big JSW in India. And – and so they spend a few billion dollars a year, but they just don't throw the money out. You have to demonstrate performa financials that you're going to do something incredible, right? And Well, you need to make sure you're going to make money for the company. Make money, correct. An investment that pays off. Well, and for me, it was about making money. But it was also about creating jobs. Right. right. Okay. So, which is why the Trump administration was certainly keen on what you were doing. Exactly. To be fair. Exactly. That's fair. And um, and so we did design this uh, fa- facility of the future. In fact, the plate mill is going in right now as we speak. But the hot end, which is an electric arc furnace mm-hmm. and a caster, was absolutely necessary in my mind. And the parent also ultimately agreed. <clears throat> And as I said, we then had to put together pro forma financials so that we could get all the financing that was necessary. And um, and so when the Section 232 stuff came out, I thought, well, it's going to help us in a, in a way because we're looking. There was a window of opportunity because once we get everything installed the way I felt, our cost structure would go way down. We'd be competitive with anything in the world for the products we make, make and that um, we were on our way. Yeah. So, so, John, help us out here because I think – and there's so much great stuff in Joe Doe's story um, where it really explains, I think, how the steel industry works in the mm-hmm. U.S. You were in favor, though, of these tariffs back in early 2018. Correct. That President Trump imposed um, – you were an energetic backer, as I think how uh, Joe Doe described you in his story um, – why, why did you back it initially? Because what did it mean for your industry? It meant that we had, like I, I'll be a little redundant, redundant here, time to, well, to stop, or not stop, get ahead of the dumping of steel from other con- countries while we installed all the new technology that we were going to put in. So you needed that. You needed that time. We needed it. And what, and just to go back in time a bit, um, uh, I, I grew up in Youngstown, Ohio. Yeah. I started working the steel mills when I was 18. And <clears throat> over time, as I progressed in my career, uh, I watched tens of thousands of jobs disappear because uh, many of the steel companies were not 
keeping up with the great new technology that was being designed uh, all over the world. So uh, this was like a, um, <clears throat> a step down back in memory road or memory lane, whatever. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and this be big, beautiful plate mill that's 40 years old was built by U.S. Steel. Yeah. my first employer. Mm. So this was an opportunity to redo something. I was a design engineer and I was a, well, you know what the story says. And I've done a lot of things in, with regard to steel making for 40 some years. And so we had now this wonderful opportunity to um, bring back jobs, install incredible equipment. Then the tariffs hit us and they hit us hard. Why did they hit you hard? Especially since you were a backer of here's, them initially and you thought it would be a good thing, right? Well, here's what happened. The tariffs were announced. Um, we knew we would have to pay tariffs because we get 12-inch thick slabs of steel. <clears throat> the only company that could provide them at that point in time, there was no one in this country that could, unfortunately. You have to have a slab caster to make these giant slabs. And there is not yet today a caster in this country that can make 12-inch slabs. So we were getting them from our parent company in India and also 8- and 10-inch slabs. Those were coming from Mexico and uh, from an ArcelorMittal plant in Mexico. And they're very high-tech from a um, chemistry standpoint to make line pipe, right, but mm -hmm. also plate. And But the 12-inch slabs um, – we, we had to get from our parent. So, uh, And the point is, and I think what I love about this story is we get like a history lesson, right, of yeah. the protections on the steel industry. And there were times where the Commerce Department go back to, you know, 2001, right, where there were tariffs imposed to protect things that were considered, you know, vital to our national security. Correct. Correct. And so this is what's been going on. But you're saying that these slabs are not produced here. So the only way to get them is you have to import them. We have it's to. not like we're protecting some domestic industry here. Correct. Okay. Exactly. And so basically the tariffs that were meant to help you were hurting you on the other side. Yes. But we thought because there was an exclusion methodology that you could file with the Commerce Department that we would get all of our tariff money back. Right. And in 18, May of 18, we fire, filed for exclusions, mm -hmm. and, um, and they got denied a year later. And I was so optimistic they were going to get approved. Now, <clears throat> when you're paying 25% more for something – It's a big deal. It's a big, big deal. And so we were going to invest uh, $500 million in, uh, in Baytown, Texas. Tremendous, tremendous story and a lot of fun. And um, so, but when we got hit with the tariffs and then we couldn't get them back, uh, we spent at least $50 million on tariffs. And that's when we had to make the decision not to put the hot end in right. in Baytown. So that was a uh, – uh, <laughs> it was a bad time. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, feeling really uh, horrible about it all. And so, but you still support the administration. How is that possible? I support the administration because of the dumping issue. I don't support what they've done with the tariff issue. We are – our action, as you know, we're bringing – it's, it's, we're suing the Commerce Department right. and the, tra and tra and the uh, trade court. Mm. Now – we don't think they were fair to us. I know they weren't because we told the truth. <laughs> we said we cannot get these slabs in this country. In fact, people who took objection to our situation claimed that they could supply us the slabs and they couldn't. Mm -hmm. And You're talking about some of the big guys like U.S. Steel, Nucor? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, and so uh, – and. Uh, and AK still was another um, another entity who's now been bought by Cliffs and where I spent a great deal of my time, uh, 15 years uh, doing uh, their IPO, creating AK mm -hmm. Steel with, with a wonderful team. But John, do you argue that some of those bigger steel companies, you know, unfairly had some political sway within the government to kind of get 
the government's attention, and and as a result, you were <laughs> you guys were hurt um, with those tariffs. Yeah, those I'll, exclusions I'll, have. I'll been tell made. the story, and I'll let you make that decision. <laughs> so they did take a position against us. In fact, anyone who was bringing slaps, they took a position against collectively. They can only supply about, let's say, thirty five million tons of slabs mm-hmm. if they wanted to. But they used their slabs to make other products, right? Um, value-added products. However, um, all the objections that they took added up to over 85 million tons. So <laughs> There's no way they could have supplied it no, anyway. Right. No. The math just and particularly work. ours. So we have a little different position yeah. than others. That's John Horitz, the CEO of JSW Steel USA. We caught up with him. He is the character and subject of Joe Doe's story that's in the magazine. And we talk about trade so often, kind of from a macro, big perspective. And this one is somebody who was there on the front line, really tells the story. And it also explains how difficult trade can be. I've just seen a face I can't forget the time or place where we just met you. Facebook is what we want to talk about. Safe to say it's going to end up being one of the Faith most studied. Book. <laughs> uh, it's going to be. It's going to end up, Jason, being one of the most studied and written about companies and company founders. I feel like it's already there. Uh, we're talking about Facebook and Mark Zucker. Uh, and in keeping with that, uh, there's a new book. It's called Facebook, The Inside Story. Austin Carr is technology reporter. He read the book. He joins us now with uh, what he thought. He writes about it in the pursuit section of the magazine. Um, so? He doesn't need to be liked. He just wants to be understood. He just wants to be understood. <laughs> that, that was Mark Zuckerberg's uh, stated goal Don't for the decade all? ahead. Yeah, well, he used to do you know big annual goals, but yeah. now he's shift to decade-long goals. He's, he's taking a long-term uh, perspective. And I, I think that's really what this book gets into. I mean, it is... A, it's, it's quite a large book. It's about 500 plus pages, uh, which I had a weekend to read, so uh, which was fun. Did you like it? I, I did enjoy it. I mean, if you're really obsessed with this sort of uh, history and sort of palace entry, he does get into a lot of the details going back from the dorm room of Harvard all the way up to present. So you're going to get into the details about how Sheryl Sandberg came to the company and and really deep into the election and, and, and sort of some of the misinformation issues and propaganda that was spread on the platform. Uh, but overall, you know, this was sort of a portrait of a company that's still coming to grips with with all the issues that their platform has developed. And I, I feel like it's really fascinating to read the first half of the book, knowing the optimism and idealism that went into developing things, and right. then knowing what comes after the, the 2016 election. the social network, do I need to read the book? That, oh my God, that's exactly what I was going to ask. That is terrifying. Yeah, that is a little scary. Because <laughs> I love that movie. I mean, right. I feel like it's one of the best movies of the last 20 years. I, I do love that uh, movie as well. And he actually does go into trying to separate fact from fiction when it comes to the movie. The, the irony, of course, is I really do feel like that, that movie painted a very prescient, impressionistic yes. uh, yeah. picture of what Zuckerberg is like, although a lot of the facts are off and it's it's definitely more, um, you know, it, a taking a lot of creative license, I it's would say. It's organized. It's organized, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But well, what's interesting, this book is the author had access, right, to, I mean, they condoned or were involved correct, in the writing yeah. of this. And, and, and Stephen Levy, he, he's a you know veteran tech journalist. Um, he's He's been writing about Facebook going far, as far back as I think. 2006, 2007 timeframe. Uh, but for the last couple of years, he's been having, you know, a lot of many, many hours of access to top executives, talk to Cheryl, talk to Zuck uh, extensively. Right. Uh, and so this is sort of the, the quote inside story, meaning it's the story that Facebook wants to get out there. A lot of times they don't participate in magazine profiles or especially lately outside of Senate hearings, you know, they're not you know, talking on the record. So it is really interesting to get their insights insofar as the insights aren't that insightful. I mean, you have a lot of the quotes from Zuckerberg, uh, that are sort of toning down the truth or, you know, there's this really remarkable quote uh, toward the end of the book in which he sort of argues that Facebook has actually created more privacy rather than sort of eliminated it from the public sphere. Uh, and, and you just have to sort of grapple with, wow, is yeah. this really how this guy thinks right. about the challenges that face Facebook? Right. And, and one of the things you point out in the story, just to go back to the sort of social network versus this is there's no Sheryl Sandberg in social network. There's a lot of Sheryl Sandberg yes. in this book. There, there is a lot, especially toward the latter half. And, uh, you know, one of the more interesting thing, y- y- you're sort of seeing who the fingers get pointed at for a lot of the Facebook woes over the last couple of years. And a lot of them, re- surprisingly, were, were pointed at Cheryl. Um, you know, some of that is attributed to the tragic death of her husband a few right. years back and and that coming right before the election. Uh, Stephen uh, Levy writes 
that she wasn't operating at peak performance then, but also that she was sort of a, a micromanager and, and very much obsessed with her image, which Zuckerberg is guilty of too, as the reporting shows, but it was really revealing just to see how much of her image is managed for the public. Well, and remind me, because I thought like kind of her ability to maybe get emotional and teary like, yeah. Talk to us a little bit about that, because I thought yeah. that was pretty critical. It, it was interesting. I mean, there, there was a couple uh, moments in the book where the, the implication being that uh, Sandberg sort of plays up being vulnerable or right. uh, anxious about an interview to get softer questions in interviews with journalists. Yeah. And, uh, you know, perhaps that's common in the industry. Um, in fact, uh, a Facebook comms person was arguing on Twitter that, you know, she, she does, she is uh, real and authentic when she's getting emotional. She does get nervous before these things. But I think there's an insinuation the book that yeah. perhaps she's just doing this for uh, public consumption. Sort of ginning it up a little bit, yeah. Uh, there's also a great anecdote <laughs> that you write about with the uh, the hair dryer in the armpit. Yes, uh, one of the more disturbing images in the book. For yeah. Zuckerberg, we should Oh, come on, out. everybody's been there. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, he, the, the, the anecdote being that that's Zuckerberg just, is just... Have they? <laughs> but that's just a PR team protecting the... You know what I mean? I'm Who just is saying. asking for it? Well, it was, it was funny. On Twitter, we saw Twitter's communications team jump in and, and basically express alarm that this was a task the comms had to do for Zuckerberg <laughs> and then Jack Dorsey responded saying that he would be happy to do that service for anyone on the Twitter communications team himself. And that's Austin Carr talking about the new book on Facebook. He has a great review, which I have to say is a good tease for this book. So many details that I, I think people don't know. You think you know the story because you've watched The Social Network. You don't. You and God versus me, Vincent Kennedy McMahon. You will worship me! And that, of course, as he pointed out, is the sultry sound of Vince McMahon. <gasps> yeah, a little aggro there. He's got a lot to be aggro about these days because yes. business not going so well. Felix Gillette is here with us. Media, entertainment, telecom, editor, so much more here at Bloomberg. All right, so WWE yes. falling on some difficult times. It all comes down to Mr. McMahon to some extent. It does. And, you know, a year ago... Uh, WWE was really flying high, and suddenly there are all these concerns about McMahon, about the streaming network, which has lost 10% of its subscribers over the past year. The stock price has lost a third of its value this year. Uh, ticket sales are slumping. Uh, so there are all these concerns, um, all of which come back to management at one level or another. So what, I mean, what is he doing wrong? What is he ignoring? Or is it just the environment where people have a lot of choices and maybe we've moved beyond, despite Jason Kelly loving it when he was a kid, yeah. maybe we've all moved beyond it. I think one of the big concerns is uh, the launching of the XFL. Yeah. Uh, football league which McMahon is running through a separate company Alpha Entertainment but people are concerned that it's just you know taking up a bunch of his time he recently let go of the co-presidents of WWE so he actually has less help now and the thing about Vince McMahon which anyone knows if you've gone to any of these matches is that he really is so involved in the storylines of the wrestling and there's a feeling that you know the wrestling st storylines have gone stale Part of it is that there's just so much on TV right now. Well, that's They're doing my point, right? yeah three live shows a week. That's seven hours of scripted uh, programming that they have to do every week. Yeah. And uh, there's just a feeling that's oversaturated, and uh, it would help to bring in fresh talent as opposed to getting rid of the help on WWE. Well, and there's also this, and and I am interested in your perspective on this, yep. Felix. You know, there's also this sense of like. WWE doesn't feel very, shall we say, 2020. You know, like, I mean, right. and yet we know, as you said a year ago, yeah. it was it was really soaring. How does it fit into, dare I say, like the current zeitgeist? Well, part of it is that, uh, you know, they made this big deal about expanding overseas yeah. and they were going to go into India and the Middle East. That hasn't really panned out the way they planned. They also made a huge bet on their streaming platform six years ago before anyone was really mm. doing this. They took all their big pay-per-views like WrestleMania, moved them off of cable and onto their streaming platform. And they got a lot of pickup initially. But now the problem is that you have Disney Plus, you have 
you know, Netflix, you have all these huge giant streaming services, much harder to get attention for standalone streaming services like WWE. And the fact that they're losing subscribers is, I think, uh, a big concern. Do they just need their kind of Game of Thrones? In other words, they need somebody who's just like, oh my God, did you see what so-and-so did the other night? Do they need a star? Part of it comes back to talent. I mean, John Cena was like the biggest star in WWE Universe for the past decade. He's really just disappeared to Hollywood. You know, he's in all these comedies now. He's, you know, he hasn't wrestled (laughs) in over a year. And so they tried to, you know, make Roman Reigns the next big star and you know he got leukemia so it wasn't really the league's fault but like he was out they've had some big injuries and there's just it is a moment where you know i think wwe to cross over has to have one giant star that pulls in casual fans all of that though is fixable like that's what i'm wondering though has it run its course are we just like you know i think when analysts have asked mcmahon okay well what are you going to do about this he's downplay oh it's not a concern you know we're making more money than ever um but i think you know he has acknowledged that maybe they'll make a strategic decision to change some of the distribution and he's signaled a willingness to perhaps sell some of those big former pay-per-view events Mm. like wrestlemania royal rumble uh SummerSlam, to one of these streaming services and since all these streaming services are you know, fighting for attention and yeah. subscribers, they might be willing to overpay and just throw a huge amount of money to it. UFC signed this big deal with uh, ESPN Plus, and people said, well, that could be a model. You know, WWE could just break out a couple of their big events, sell those to a different streaming platform. Yeah, they'd lose some subscribers um, in the short term for their own streaming platform, but they'd still have all their archival footage. So that might be one way uh, to get out of this. At the same time, I think they do need a star because in right. the end, the you know the oversaturation isn't going to be solved by just adding more wrestling into the cultural right. mix. Not more, yeah. just you yeah, know, not qu- quantity, <laughs> but quality. Right, and in, in terms of that sort of quantity and quality, I, I wonder, Felix, if you'll indulge us and, and give us your read on sort of the streaming wars as they stand right now. So much of it is about just like this fight for time and eyeball. Yeah, I think it's emblematic of this world in which even giant services are struggling to get enough attention to make money and for i mean wwe is a big business but on their own i think it's difficult for anybody at this point and i think there's been a realization okay maybe going your own way and streaming is not going to work out and you need to team up with one of these giants yeah you know maybe nbc would make sense wwe's done a lot of work with Uh, NBC over the years. So bottom line, does Vince McMahon need to step aside? Well, he has a perfect successor in place. I mean, his daughter, Stephanie McMahon, and her husband, Triple H, who was a great wrestler and also has been in charge of all the talent development in recent years, they're perfect. I mean, they're really plugged into the whole business. They've been personalities on air. They know it backwards and forwards. I think a lot of people would just say, you know, step aside, give more, give them more control over the storylines, let them bring in some fresh talent and let them really step up and run this business. All right. So is that a yes? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll see what Vince, uh, I don't think he's ready to let go anytime soon. That's Felix Gillette. And uh, interesting story. When you think about World Wrestling Entertainment, WWE, you have to think about Vince McMahon, right? Totally. No doubt about it. But at this point in the game, this is a company that needs a turnaround. It's facing, you know, a lower audience, a lot of competition for uh, eyeballs and consumers. Uh, But uh, Vince McMahon, he might be the biggest problem. Right. He's cleaned house, and so it really falls to him to solve this issue. And he's also got this whole uh, notion of a new football league that's launching, and maybe that's distracting him quite a bit. The Opener Pursuits this week is all about puzzles that will drive you wild. And um, I've got kind of a personal side to this story, too, because my family's really into puzzles. Well, save up your pennies, because (laughs) I think you're going to have to have everybody chip in if you're going to have one of these puzzles. Or, you know, I don't know, maybe you won the lottery, because these are expensive puzzles uh, and very popular with the hoity-toity among us. (laughs) Devin Leonard is here. Tell us about Stave. I don't know. I just feel like doing the story. I stumbled into the secret society of super wealthy people who are all addicted to these puzzles. How did you stumble into this? This feels like not a Devin Leonard story. Uh, this was an assignment from one Mr. <laughs> Mr. Joel from Weber. Up above. Yeah, 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 yeah. I knew nothing about this. All right. So, so, so you go into this story. You said you like stumbled into something pretty cool. 
Well, it's just, I, I don't know. I, I mean, it's just puzzles. It's, I, I'm not really a, a puzzle person. And I, I guess he's, he said there was something sort of strange you know, about the company. But it turns out it's very strange. I mean, I mean it's basically was founded by a guy who sort of calls himself the chief tormentor, this guy, Steve <laughs> Richardson. And that's basically sort of, he sort of fell into making puzzles. I mean, he'd been laid off from his job as a, at a computer company in, in Hanover, New Hampshire. And so he and another guy who we worked with, uh, you know, started making sort of board games, really. I mean, these guys were just flailing around. Right. And then one day, some rich guy from Boston calls them up and says, I'm, you know, do you, well, I guess they were also making these jigsaw puzzles. He said, do you make wooden ones? Because I, cause I would pay $300. And they were saying, well, yeah, because, we, you know, we were just making – we were selling arts for $3. So basically, they started making puzzles for these guys. And they just found all these people. Another company had been making puzzles. They sort of went out of business. And they picked up all these all these rich people. But then to keep them sort of, uh, you know, engaged, addicted, they had, had to keep making the puzzles harder and harder and harder. And anyway, it just goes on from there. It feels like eyes wide shut for puzzles. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> I'm reading this story and just thinking, as you say, this secret society. Tell us about these puzzles, though. They Generally, they come in a blue box. So you don't know what they look like. So anybody There's no ever picture a on, right, 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 right on right, right, top. Right. Most puzzles and then, have. And then they don't have – a lot of them don't have straight edges because you know, usually when people put puzzles together, that's what they work from. Yeah. They kind of work yeah. their inside. So you can't do that. And then they throw in puzzle pieces that don't fit. So you're sitting there trying to, trying to, fit, the, you know, trying to fit these pieces that, you know, and that don't fit. And then to make the puzzles harder, they came up with things like making these puzzles. There's one called the main event where it's, it's a lion's head. But most of the, most of the uh, pieces are almost the same color and, right. they're, and they're the same size. So try and put that together. You, you know, how, how do you do that? So that drives people crazy. And there's another one called Olivia that's kind of famous because you can put it, you can fit it together in literally, they say 10,000 different ways, but only one is right. So, so that sort of drives people crazy. But it turns out that's what people like. I mean, well, tell they, us they, they want to be tortured. Well, tell us about these people who want to be tortured, right? Because we're going to know some of these names. <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, because I sort of read that they had some, you know, upscale clients, but you know, they they took me on a tour, and then on the wall, there's you know, pictures and letters from Bill and Melinda Gates, Jeff Bezos, you know, Queen Elizabeth II, you know, and, and others. You know, that's sort of the let's just say that's the the demographic. But I understand it's Jeff Bezos's wife that's really into puzzles. Well, that's that what right? they said. We 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 weren't able to, to to get a comment on that, but yeah, that that was that was kind of fun too. Well, and and you also talk about I guess there's group activity. Like, is there special? Like, tell us a little bit more about what they yeah, do. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that that, that they did was they they. Got their puzzles into all these upscale kind of resorts. This is a whole other world that I didn't really know about that existed, but yeah. Twin Farms is one. But that's a place where, you know, these these cottages, I guess you'd call them. It's very beautiful. $2,000 a night. But they got puzzles that, you know, they're sort of loners to all these places because, you know, people go in there. If the weather's bad, what are they going to do? Yeah. So, right. So they so, – so, so They get them hooked, right? Yeah. No, no. And so that's been – and you know, there's there's places like that in Montana. There's places like that in North Carolina. So they're all there. Then they also have these puzzle parties where all these people, you know, you know, get together. Some of them I interviewed and said, "Oh, you know, we're all crazy." And 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 uh, eyes wide but, shut, you know. eyes wide open. <laughs> I'm telling you, eyes wide open on yeah. the puzzle. We're we're doing a puzzle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So I mean, part of it is they they have hit on this gold mine from the beginning, right. Devin. They've had people essentially asking them uh, to build these. How big does this business grow? What are their ambitions? Well, I mean, it's, it's grown to twenty five people. It's not very big. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're in this little place, like next next door to a to, a, to a UPS store in Norwich, Vermont. It's, I mean, it's you know, it's kind of a little industrial park. So, I think they're pretty happy with yeah. the business being where it is. Although, um, I, I, I basically they, they said when they when they started. You know, you do all this business at Christmas, then everything would die, and it, right. and it took them a little while to get to you know to get people sort of ordering all year round. But that's happening, and basically, the founder, the chief tormentor, he sort of stepped aside and handed it over to two, <laughs> to two of his long, longtime deputies, and that's Devin Leonard, usually a guy that we go to for a deep dive on characters within the U.S. presidential administration. This was an assignment he didn't see coming, but I kind of got the sense he got into it. But he had a hard time with the puzzle. It was his he daughter, did. I think, who tackled it and had a better time with it. Let's dance with Mary Jane. 
So last year at the Blue Margera Head Summit, uh, we caught up with Joe Lasardi, Cureleaf Holdings CEO. We've also uh, been lucky to have his executive chairman, Boris Jordan, also on our air. He was named uh, part of the Bloomberg 50. Cureleaf, based in Wakefield, Massachusetts. Joe joining us from our Boston Bureau. Earlier, he participated in the Cannavest East event. It was on uh, a panel looking at uh, the cannabis business from a multi-state operator perspective. So tell us a little bit about the panel and what you guys were looking at and how business is going. Yeah, it was a great panel. Um, it was an investor-focused panel, and uh, there's a bunch of multi-state operators here in town to talk about their business. And I think, you know, the overall theme is that U.S. cannabis is going to have a huge year this year. There are a number of catalysts on the horizon. You've got um, governors in New York, Connecticut, and Pennsylvania all talking about adult use. Um, it's likely New Jersey will pass an adult use bill in, in the fall along with Arizona. So there's going to be a lot of strong catalysts this year. And, you know, Careleaf, as the leading company in this space, is really positioned to capitalize on it. So Overall, it was a very positive message. So positive. I'm curious, do you have an idea of how many states might ultimately see state-level legalization this year? Because I know Florida and New Mexico, they seem to be struggling a little bit with their efforts. Do you have like a number that you've been thinking about? Yeah, I think you'll see, um, you know, Vermont likely will do an adult use um, uh, sales program. You know, states like Mississippi and South Dakota have initiatives on the ballot. So you could see three or four new states for medical and a handful of new states for adult use. Um, Utah just enacted a program. Leaf was fortunate enough to win one of the 14 licenses in Utah. So we'll be entering that state later this year. And um, we're really excited about where the, the country is and the progression of cannabis across the, the states. So Joe, you guys have been uh, pretty acquisitive, I think. I think it's uh, fair to say a lot of deal making going on in general. Uh, you closed on your acquisition of Select, that obviously was a big deal. Uh, tell us about, if you can, an update on the purchase of Grassroots, I believe. That's under federal review or under DOJ review? Yeah, so Grassroots is going to be a very transformative acquisition for the company. It really gets us into key markets, including Illinois, Michigan. Um, they've got a big presence in Pennsylvania and Maryland. Uh, we announced two weeks ago that we cleared the uh, the DOJ review, the HSR hurdle, and so now we're just working with state regulators got to it. transfer the licenses, and we expect to close the deal in the spring. And more deals to come. Well, we're always on the lookout. I mean, we, we you know we're not afraid to hit singles. There are a number of states where we already we operate in where we could do some bolt-ons, and we're always looking to deploy capital uh, into a creative acquisition. So um, we're on the hunt and you know always active. I mean, it feels like given some of the shall we say sort of turbulence in the market last year that maybe some of the smaller names could be looking for a way out. Are you seeing people sort of either pitch themselves or bankers pitching a little bit more fervently these days? Yeah, I think the M&A uh, activity will intensify this year. There are definitely a lot of um, small operators that want to um, find a dance partner and, and, and hitch their wagon to some of the bigger players. We did a big capital raise uh, early this year. We did a $300 million raise, and so the balance sheet is well fortified to go out and be opportunistic, and um, we'll, we'll make sure we pick our shots carefully, but it looks like it's a very good year for acquisitions. You and I talked a lot, too, about the vaping scare and you know the impact that that has had on you and, and kind of the industry specifically. Where are we on that? Um, uh, and any of your thoughts in terms of maybe, you know, rolling back any vaping exposure? Yeah, I think it's interesting in that, you know, what that really highlighted was a greater awareness for people about what they put in their bodies. And mm -hmm. so I think we're seeing a, a trend where people are gravitating to the regulated market. And I actually expect the vape category to continue to grow. There's a lot of innovation in, in the sector. There's new products and form factors coming all the time. And consumers have shown a real strong preference for that form factor. So I think it's going to continue to grow. And so as you sort of looked around the uh, the conference, the Canavest East uh, event there in Boston, what was the mood uh, among the participants, especially from the investor crowd? Well, I mean, I think certainly there's a big difference between U.S. and Canadian cannabis at this point. I think people understand the decoupling and yeah. the, why the U.S. narrative is so strong. So I think the general mood was that, you know, U.S. cannabis is on the rise. It grew, you know, year over year. And I think, as I said, there's a number of catalysts on the horizon that could really propel the industry. So I thought the mood was overall, you know, positive. It, it's definitely a um, tough capital raising environment. And so we definitely feel um, that we're in a privileged position with our balance sheet. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people out there trying to find capital. But overall, 
overall, I think the, the, the big macro trends are very positive. Joe, as you know, getting the state approval, that's really cool and all, but the kind of holy grail is getting the federal government to allow weed, right? Because that has certainly, without that, kind of scared off the financial industry, and you need that in order to be able to kind of, you know, do financial transactions easily from state to state. So what do you think about federal government signing off on this anytime soon this year? Well, you know, in an election year, it's hard to really predict what happens True. in D.C. And, and of course, there's some overhang from the, the impeachment stuff. But, you know, what I think is telling is that if you look at even the Democratic presidential field, you know, the, every candidate is, is you know, pro-cannabis in some form or another. It's, it's quite unpopular to be anti-cannabis at this point. We have 33 states with medical programs. I think we've reached more than a tipping point. Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time in D.C. I, I will say clearly it's not a partisan issue that, you know, it covers uh, people from both sides of the aisle. So I think it will happen, um, you know, probably in the next 12 to 24 months, worst case. That's Joe Lasardi, the CEO of Cureleaf. And, you know, Jason, we've caught up with him a few times as well as uh, the company's executive chairman and co-founder, Boris Jordan, uh, over the past year. I mean, this is an industry over the last couple of years where everybody wanted in. Uh, we were focused on the Canadian companies, now we're focused on the U.S. companies, you know, and they still face a lot of hurdles, whether it's regulatory hurdles uh, as they build out their businesses. But it was great to check in with him because he really has a front seat in terms of what's happening. Well, absolutely. It sounds like more deal making to come. So yeah. this could be a crucial year for that company and that industry. Well, another really fun conversation I had, Carol, was with an old friend of mine. She's the president of the University of Minnesota. Her name is Joan Gable. She's relatively new to the job, moving to Minnesota right. from South Carolina and having the purview that she does, some really good insights into the current state and the future of higher education. Well, so much going on in terms of education. Here's part of your conversation. All right. So you've got a new job. I've uh, got a new job. Very exciting. Uh, tell me about it. What have you learned so far? So I've learned that higher ed is in an interesting time, but I've learned that um, wearing a coat is enough to cope with the really cold weather. <laughs> it's cold in Minnesota, but you know, they make coats, so yeah. that part's good. And I've really learned that I'm really glad I do what I do, just from a selfish point of view, that I made a switch into higher ed a few decades ago, and right. I always wonder, huh, I wonder what would have happened if things had gone a different way, and I'm pretty glad they've gone the way they have. It does feel like we're at this really interesting and really challenging moment for higher education right mm -hmm. now. Issues of affordability, issues of diversity, all of these things going on. Uh, how would you describe it? How do you rank those challenges? Well, we have the what I would put them in categories. We have the social challenges, which is the idea that, especially in public higher education, which is the space that I'm in, we exist in order to serve. And so we need to be accessible. And that means we need to be affordable and we need to be welcoming so that everyone who comes on board has the same chance for success that every other person who comes on board has. So that's one category. And then we have this sort of social uh, value proposition question where some people are really wondering whether we really do something that's worth doing, worth paying for, worth spending time on. And then we have the research question for those of us at research institutions where the fact that we engage in scholarship that we're in large part existing to explore and solve problems and be theoretical and inquire and then add a little technology competition, right. a little literal competition for profits, et cetera. It's a very interesting time. So how do you distinguish your mission at University of Minnesota from everybody else? Well, we are the only research university in the state of Minnesota. So we have this very interesting intersection between being the place and also being world-class. Mm -hmm. So total sense of place, deep commitment to access, but also very keen on excellence and being a global player in the questions that we explore and the quality of the teaching that we do. And so we think we've really held on to that in a way that some of our competitors have not, that we are both accessible and excellent. It's not an either or. So I want to talk about your first, not even year in the job, but, you know, I follow you on Twitter and you're a political candidate in many ways, like you're all over, just, you did this barnstorming tour, it felt like, uh, of the state. What did you <laughs> Interesting learn? Interesting choice of words for a land grant institution. <laughs> there you go. Yes. Well, first of all, I'm very flattered that you follow me on Twitter, <laughs> but that, well, in Minnesota, we have other institutions right. in the state of Minnesota, but there's only one big research university. So the president of that university is the president of the big Twin Cities campus that everyone thinks of, but also of four other campuses around the state. And very public position there. So yeah. people want to see us. They want to see our teams. They want to see our administrative leadership. They want to see our coaches. I do a lot of things that are 
all over the place. So let's talk about how you got to this job. You mentioned work in the private sector. I mean, let's go all the way back. You grow up down south. Uh, you sort of make your way into – you go to school up north at Haverford. You get a law degree from University of Georgia, and you're going to be a lawyer, right? I mean, that, that I was, was the plan. Yeah. Yes, I practiced law. Yeah. And I practiced law for a few years. I had my daughter, who is now an adult, who lives in Seattle and um, works for a big coffee company out there. And <laughs> Might have uh, heard of it. Might have heard of it. Yeah. And she um, changed my life, as they do, where I just thought I really want more balance, more time with her, more um, – ability to do the things on the bucket list that I didn't think I would be able to do. And I worked for a really great law firm and I was very well treated. There was nothing like that, but I just sort of got itchy. I don't know how else to describe it. And so I started asking peers and mentors and friends and faculty friends, you know, after you graduate, the way that relationship changes. And through that networking, I ended up as a candidate for a job as a lawyer on faculty. And that's Joan Gable. She is the president of the University of Minnesota. You can catch my entire conversation on our Bloomberg Business Week Extra podcast feed. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. Can't catch us live? Well, check out our daily podcast wherever you download your podcast. And now you can watch our show live on YouTube. Yep, you can see what we look like. We're incredibly good looking. Just search for Bloomberg Global News on YouTube. You can get this week's edition of the magazine. It's on newsstands now. We'll be back right here next <laughs> week at the same time. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.